As a woman and a runner, I've got to say this surprises me not a bit. Mickey, you said surprises. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's pronounced. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 154 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I recently tried my hand at applying false eyelashes. It did not go well. Can I see a photograph, please? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was going for drama and I've got to say I did achieve that, but that drama was Shakespearean and titled Death of a Spider. <laughs> Why were you? Doing a marry, it? So I was like, oh, maybe I'll put some eye merkins on so that he'll never leave me. Is your wedding theme Shakespeare's sister? Yeah, totally. Now, Mick, have you seen an advert on the Instagram? You can get magnetic ones. I have a question for you, Jen, because yes, I have seen this. What about fridges and other magnetic metals? <laughs> can we not learn a lesson from Peggy's collar? <laughs> <laughs> just just uh, wandering about with a knife stuck to my eye. Hang on, what's, what's Peggy's, Peggy's collar? Got, like a little... I'm surprised you haven't seen the myriad of photos of this. Peggy's got a little... It opens it open a cat, a cat flap? flap? But it picks right. up stuff. So periodically, I'll be looking and she'll have like a lighter hanging off her or a key. Or... She's she like Uri Geller. She's just covered in spoons. Yeah, she, all she came in once with a badge from, from a, what appeared to be a birthday party. But yesterday, in fact, my keys are quite heavy. Like there's two keys to my front door. Everything I own is on one key set. And she was sitting near it. They were on the table. And you saw her head go down because she'd been, like, just attracted to it with the metal. <laughs> and as she tried to lift it, my key watch was just too heavy. So she was just pinned on the table and I had to come and... <laughs> she, like, anchored herself and I had to come and disconnect her. My favourite was the full biscuit tin, when she had a full biscuit tin attached to her. And the carving knife was pretty terrible. <laughs> was, that, was, that was too scary. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I assume I'll just have Peggy attached to my <laughs> eye then if I use magnetic but eyelashes. But I don't understand how magnetic eyelashes work because they have to attach to something that's metal. Oh, it's eyeliner. eyeliner. Like, mag- like metallic eyeliner. But that does also rely on you being quite good, you know, having a good steady hand for the eyeliner. So, I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I've discovered that you can have Dubliners read to you by Chris O'Dowd. So, I've had a lovely time doing just that. That does sound like a lovely time. I washed my car while he was reading The Sisters to me, and he does such a marvellous variety of accents. In fact, in The Gallants, one of them just sounds like a Bob Geldof impersonation. It's hilarious. But washing the car, chortling to myself, and I thought, I, I look mad. But in, you were having a nice time, so, you know, yeah. that's fine. I do that with Lyra's toys. I give them different accents. It's more for my entertainment than it is for hers, to be fair. She's got a dragon called Ivan Drago, because it's better than... Because all the others are just called whatever the animal is. So, like, Mr. Whale, Mrs. Dog, mm. whatever. <laughs> I really need to get better at this. But, yeah, she's got um, Ivan Drago, the dragon, who is a Bolshevik. Oh, great. so you're knocking out your Russian accent. It's one of my favourite Jen accents. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I like the West yeah. Country one. Yeah, that's also excellent. Yeah. I haven't deployed that yet. I'll have to attach that to one of the other animals. It has so to be an animal that's always that. really upset when more people attend a party. So they're just constantly going. <laughs> Not another one? Yes. <laughs> On that bombshell. I'm Jen Offord, and I have spent the whole weekend helping my daughter to sit down. She can stand up now, she can put herself up, but she doesn't know how to get back down again. So then she sort of starts getting a bit upset about it. So I've had to, like, 
help her to get back down and then she immediately stands up and we go for it again and again and again and Can again. Can I just say, Jen, that in the future you're going to spend whole weekends telling her to stand up? <laughs> the worst thing is, I think I've now taught her how to do it wrong. Like, I tried to demonstrate to her what she would have to do to get down herself, but it didn't really go in. So instead what I did was I sat in the playpen with her and I sort of put my hands, like, under her armpits to then, like, guide her back down to safety. And in the end, by the end of, like, the first day, she was, like, like a fucking icebreaking exercise or something at, like, a conference. She just kind of, <laughs> woo! Just, like, <laughs> fall back on me. And I spoke to her this morning. She's at her dad's house. She was up on his bed, like, doing this. And he said, oh, that's bold. She just let go. <laughs> just, like... Later on, I chat to standard issue fave Vix Layton about starting comedy making the most out of a bad year and my trips out of the house now for like a little holiday. I speak to Halima Begum, Chief Executive of the Running Mead Trust about COVID vaccine passports. And in Jenny Off The Blocks, I'm trying not to talk about Emma Hayes. I'm failing a little bit. Instead, talking about maternity rights. And in Rated or Dated, I put our jobs on the line as we watch one of the boss's <laughs> favourite films, 1991's Thelma and Louise. You may know I have not used the phrase feminist classic there. But first, there have been some elections. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Photo ID for voting can fuck right off, right? Damn right. One conviction of voter fraud in 2019. One. That does not equal... 3.5 million Brits without photo ID. Christ. A huge percentage of this country can't be bothered to vote. I mean, that seems like the real problem to me. Agreed. Anyway, so here we are, basking in the glow (laughs) of another fucking election. Or should that be election fucking? I don't know. Was it good for you? No, me neither. Post-election days have started to follow a depressingly similar pattern, which you may have noticed. But if not, here's a rough picture for you. Stage one, Labour does badly. Mm. Regardless of how badly, the media must portray this as an utter rout. Doesn't matter if they won big in, say, the fine city of Cambridge or the West of England mayoral race. All focus must go on the big ticket prizes like the Red Wall parliamentary by-election, this time in Hartlepool. Everybody must use the expression red wall like it's long been part of our discourse and totally not something we just started using after the last election. It's very Game of Thrones, isn't it? It is. Stage two. Everybody disappointed in the result must blame the working classes. The peak 2021 blaming prize goes to Chris Emmers-Williams until last week, leader of a Labour-controlled council in Derbyshire's Amber Valley, who told the Derby Telegraph, quote, The voters let us down. Stage three. Some people will politely request that we don't descend into claims that all working class people are thick or racist. Mm -hmm. They must be ignored, particularly (laughs) if they can or could once be described as working class or if they live outside of London. This means they are biased and probably stupid and racist. Mm. Go on Twitter to say this. (laughs) Ignore the fact that everybody in the North can't possibly be working class with every fibre of your being. All got whippets as well. All of them. Not a one has got a pot to piss in. Stage four. If you're a media commentator who lives in London, (coughs) Ash Sarkar, 
you must downplay any suggestion that you might not be best placed to judge how working class northerners think. Instead, just tell the rest of the country to fuck off. Yeah. Tweet about how poor London is, but how diverse it is. Point out it's not just the North who are stupid and racist and actually not as oppressed as Londoners and randomly mention another county you've heard of, Bedfordshire. Ignore anyone who points out that Luton is majority non-white and has a higher rate of homelessness than many London boroughs. Stage five, call for someone to resign. (laughs) Ideally, Keir Starmer. If you are Keir Starmer, talk about sacking Angela Rayner, a working class northerner. If you're not Keir Starmer, call for the reinstatement of Jeremy Corbyn. Mention the Iraq war a lot. (laughs) Stage six, look to the future. Go to the feed of Sarkar or Owen Jones or any number of middle class commentators and air your view that Labour should stop trying to appeal to racists and transphobes and other regional working class scum and become the party of young middle class Londoners. Suppress the thought that that might actually be part of the problem and that you may not know what you are talking about with every fibre in your being. Dump it down. Push it down. Stage seven. Have a nice cup of tea and wait for all this to blow over. Stage eight. Wake up on the morning after the next election. I woke up on the morning after this election having had my first jab the day before and I wasn't sure what was sort of psychological and what was a side effect of the AstraZeneca. That's because you're from the North Omic, so you're poor and racist and stupid. Yeah, well, that's why I'm going to talk to my whippet about this later. (laughs) Sticking with elections, in Scotland it was an unsurprising win for the Scottish National Party, which secured an historic fourth term at Holyrood. Nicola Sturgeon, SNP leader and Scotland's First Minister for six and a half years and counting, immediately signalled her armour was polished for constitutional battle, telling Boris Johnson that a second independence referendum is, and I quote, a matter of when, not if. Her government is ripe to legislate for the vote, and if he wants to stop that, he would have to go to court. Sturgeon has never shied away from fighting talk when it comes to delivering independence to Scotland and it clearly works with the SNP taking votes from both the Conservatives and Labour in last week's election. Sturgeon's game plan has always been crystal, if conditional. If she can hold a majority of seats in Scottish Parliament, then if she can use that victory to demand another independence referendum, then if she wins that referendum, well, then she'd be the first leader of an independent Scotland since 1707. It is a huge goal. Now, a little bit stymied in that the SNP didn't win a majority of seats in the election, falling just one seat short, although analysis consistently point out it is very tricky for any party to gain the majority in Scotland. The last time that happened was in 2011, and it was the SNP. As it stands now, the SNP holds 64 out of Holyrood's 129 seats, with the Tories, Labour, the Green Party and the Lib Dems taking the others in that order of seats held. You'll notice no mention of Alex Salmond's newly formed rival pro-independence party, ALBA, which failed to gain a single seat. No. I know, right? Also (laughs) worth noting that Salmond's public approval ratings in Scotland are now lower than those of Boris Johnson. I mean, you have to limbo under that bar, don't you? 
But that aim of Scottish independence is a uniting, as well as clearly a dividing one, bringing together social liberals and conservatives, pro and anti-Brexiteers, millennials and boomers, and it could be argued masking a pretty uneven record on health, education and feminist policy, the latter despite Sturgeon's loudly touted hashtag girlboss credentials. It also means that political debate in Scotland is mostly myopic. Mostly, because despite Sturgeon's immediate fight and talk, focus right now is on a COVID recovery plan and she will be attending the UK-wide COVID recovery summit involving all four governments called by Johnson. Finally, I can't talk about the elections in Scotland without saying congratulations to Carcarb Stewart, who made history with her win for the SNP in Glasgow Kelvin, which makes her the first woman of colour elected to Scottish Parliament. It's interesting, isn't it, the SNP independence thing? I wonder whether, this will get me in trouble, but a very small but not so secretly cynical part of me wonders if by getting Scottish independence, the SNP would be signing their own death warrant. I totally agree So in many ways, in many ways, it's better to just constantly keep the hope alive and in the knowledge that it probably couldn't ever happen. Yeah, different but similar to the Brexit party. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Hartlepool because that's all people are talking about. In the last election, 26% of that vote went to the Brexit party, which doesn't Mm. exist anymore. Well, it's reform now and that got 1% of the vote in Hartlepool. So yeah, where are those, where's that 25% of the the voters going to go? They're not going to go Labour, are they? If they were voting for the Brexit party, because where does Labour stand? Nobody knows. It's, um, I think, an odd call to just have one big policy, right? Yeah, yeah, agreed. But it's so huge. I totally understand why people who all they want, that is their focus, is independence for Scotland, will ignore other stuff and vote SNP. Obviously, I say this as an English person and apologise profusely to all of our Scottish listeners if I have got this totally, you know, tits over arse, but... Oh, that's the way they should go. Arse over tits. I am biased, obviously, and so perhaps I I have confirmation bias because I don't want Scotland to go. I'd like to be happy for them and them to be independent, but I don't want to be left here without them. Seconded. (laughs) Good news, Mick? Yes, please. Don't mind if I do. So, following on from our conversation about miscarriage in last week's Bush Telegraph, the online bank Monzo has become one of the first UK companies to offer paid leave for employees affected by the loss of a pregnancy. That is good. The policy will give either partner up to 10 extra days of paid leave if they lose a baby due to abortion, miscarriage or stillbirth, regardless of when in the pregnancy it happens. It also includes staff members who are partners because, as we know, pregnancy loss doesn't just affect women or heterosexual couples. Mm -hmm. Extra leave can be approved by managers if staff feel they need more than two weeks. The policy, which was actually rolled out pretty quietly two months ago, has been welcomed by campaigners. Ruth Bender-Attic, the National Director of the Miscarriage Association, told The Guardian, quote, People have been waiting for a long time for more understanding and recognition of the impact that a miscarriage or pregnancy loss can have, whether it's miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy or molar pregnancy or termination for whatever reason. Worth mentioning here too that the SNP had the following statement in its 2021 manifesto. 
We will emulate New Zealand where families who experience miscarriage or stillbirth are entitled to three days of paid leave by delivering this within the public sector and call on the UK government to make the necessary changes to employment law to make it available for everyone. So let's wait and see what happens with that too. Fingers crossed we'll be talking about it in the good news of the future. God, good news and future, they're the words we don't often use together. (laughs) No. (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when sexism can run, but it can't hide. It's, uh, It's not even trying to hide, is it, Hannah? It's just, it's just out there. It's certainly running alongside women runners, as a new survey of 2,000 runners by the magazines Runners World and Women's Health discovered that 60% of the women they spoke to had been harassed while running. 25% reported being regularly subjected to sexist comments or unwanted sexual advances. And 6% said they'd felt harassed to such an extent that they feared for their lives. 90% of this harassment came from... Hannah, want to guess? Uh, squirrels? From squirrels who were actually men in squirrel costumes. Or just men. 90% of the harassment came from men. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I didn't guess that, to be honest. I got overexcited. Did you just see a squirrel? Yeah. As a woman and a runner, I've got to say, this surprises me not a bit. I'm talking purely from personal experience here, but while I found it's got much, much less as I've got older, there was a time in my running life where I was running five times a week, and that meant that at least three times a week I was being catcalled, yelled at, followed, and more often than you'd think, because this is fucking weird, a man would get in front of me and then run backwards while catcalling or heckling me. Fury-makingly, not one of the tossers ever fell over and knocked himself unconscious. The worst physical thing that happened to me while running was a man opened the door of his parked car and slapped my arse hard as I ran past. But it was getting dark and I was on my own, so I just ran faster and had a frustrated, angry cry once my front door was safely shut. The actual worst thing that happened to me was sustained harassment by a man in the running club I joined, to the point I stopped doing something I loved. I just quit. Other women in the club privately told me they were pleased when I joined because it meant his attentions were no longer on them. I'm not going to unpack that here, though. Anyway, all of that means I also have no surprise for the stat of 11%, which is how many women stop running altogether because of harassment. Actually, that feels a bit low, until I think of all the would-be female runners who will have been put off by this sort of insidious behaviour before they even really got into it. Obviously, all of the findings in this survey tie into what we already know about women feeling unsafe on the public streets, particularly when alone. And so, all I can say is what I've said before. We need to talk to our boys so they don't grow up to do this, and men need to talk to each other, because this is far from okay, and it needs to jog on. Yeah, 100% agreed. This is entirely an aside, but I went to this place once called Cooper in Australia, And it's the like where most of the world's opals come from. So it's big on mining, but there's also like pretty much you can just turn up and dig in the street and you can take the opals if you find them. And people have actually done that. So there's quite a lot of holes. So there's quite a lot of signs saying beware holes of where you're walking. Mm -hmm. And I saw one sign that said no running backwards. And I always remember thinking, who the fuck does that? But now I have this joyous idea that the women in Cubapedia are at least safe from that because they're all, at least three harassers a week are lost down a mine. 
Oh my God, that would be amazing. What an incredible punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Now then, clearly we give you loads of stuff for your ears. And if you haven't already, you really should, one, hit subscribe so fresh aural delights are waiting for you. And two, have a fertile through our back catalogue of more than 500 podcasts. But what about your eyes? Well, dear listener, you too can be a dear reader simply by signing up for our weekly newsletter, The Bush Telegram. And yes, it is a clever play on The Bush Telegraph. Thanks for noticing. Me, Hannah and Jen take it in turns to chart bits of news that didn't make it into the pod, articles you might fancy checking out, daft YouTube videos our chats have reminded us of, and, in my case, links to cats that ski. That's right, skiing cats. Who doesn't want that in their life? It is well easy to sign up. Just visit our website, standardissuepodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom and pop your email address in the box. Then just wait for some class reading material to hit your inbox each Wednesday. Bingo bongo. Hi, Hannah here. It's been a long week. It's Friday and I am joined, just to make the end of my week much better, by friend of the show and host of Comedy Arcade, Fix Layton. Fix, how the fuck are you? Oh, it's so well. All the better for seeing you. I haven't been on for ages. I know. You look really well as well. Actually, that was going to be one of the first questions I was going to ask you. I keep seeing you look ridiculously glamorous on Instagram and on Comedy Arcade. And I mean, you're doing all that yourself. How are you managing? I've got so much better at hair and makeup over lockdown. It was the thing that kept me sane. Getting up every day and doing makeup and hair and getting dressed was the one bit of my day that was normal. So I just kept it up, even though I wasn't going anywhere. And I just, I felt better in myself. I tried because people were like, oh, take your bra off, do this. I tried. I tried that. It just didn't feel like me. And I wanted to hold on to my sense of self. And yeah, I've just had more time to do it. I have heard other people say that. Mickey does that a lot. In a minute, I might have to get up and shut my cats out. And you will see that I have my pajamas on and no bra on today because that's how (laughs) it works for me. As most people know, full confession, I dressed quite a lot like that before the pandemic, (laughs) to be honest. I have also been out in the street today in my pajamas. So I've mentioned Comedy Arcade. and Actually, I've been on it, although it had a different name back when I was on it. Comedy Roulette, which was aggressive and not as much fun to do a photo shoot around, according to my (laughs) photographer. (laughs) I think I styled it for me. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have that vibe. I didn't have a roulette, violent vibe, so Arcade felt a little bit more me. Very early days when I did one, and Sarah Keyworth and And Catherine Catherine Bohart were on it, and they appeared to come as a team. So I had Joan basically with her face in the camera almost the whole way through it but I had a lot of fun tell me how has comedy arcade moved on since that obviously clear high point of having me on has it all gone downhill from then (laughs) well I have had Mickey on since so I have to be careful (laughs) oh yeah so obviously the standard has stayed considerably high yeah yeah exactly exactly that it was just an attention-seeking exercise initially I wanted to get on Twitch other people were doing Twitch and they were getting loads of followers and I wanted a piece of that action but I'm not patient enough for Twitch. Twitch, you have to build up over time. You have to do a certain amount of hours mm. to reach certain levels. I, I just, I couldn't be asked. I saw, again, other people doing podcasts. And you do think, don't you, do I need to add to this? <laughs> Every day somebody I knew from, like the comedy circuit was releasing something new. But it's so much fun doing the game. And there are so few female-led panel shows. I thought what I had there was potentially something that might, 
be a little bit different. Nothing's mm. totally unique. There's too many. Yeah, the whole concept was getting comedians that you've heard a lot from, because there's such a podcast circuit, which you'll know. Yeah. And you do inadvertently find yourself deciding the same telling the same story because you like it and you yeah. enjoy telling it and you know you know it works it's like material and I wanted to shake everybody out of that and hear the people that I love do something a bit different and talk about something I hadn't heard before so it's random topics and it's interesting what comes out I let people plan if they want so it's always very much if you want to prepare here are all the questions you might be asked in advance but a lot of the time people come on and just say something they completely didn't expect <laughs> Yeah. You can see it. You can see that they're as surprised as you that they're sharing <laughs> it, but it's out there now. <laughs> you do have some guys on sometimes. Yeah, so it's 67% women and non-binary people at last check. It's not deliberate. I just know loads of really funny women. But it skews towards men. The listenership skews towards men, which is, you know, kind of proves a point, I think. That is interesting. I mean, our listenership is a lot less female than I think people would assume that it is. I think people assume, oh, it's like 93% and some gay men. And in fact, it's <laughs> it's way closer to 65, 35. Well, yeah, it should be interesting to everyone because it's half of us. Absolutely. You're still working a full-time job on top of everything else, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, I started a new one in lockdown as well, which is another reason to dress up for work because they haven't seen me at my best yeah. <laughs> so I don't want them to start with like seeing me at that level so, yeah also yeah, you're, you're, well added to that your house is very tidy behind you whereas <laughs> my house is tidy in the square behind me and nowhere else <laughs> nowhere else this is nothing to do with me this is my husband he doesn't like any kind of clutter so where can people watch comedy arcade or tune in are you still doing it live we don't do it as live shows now I do some ticketed live shows where it is a show so we've got one coming up for Brighton Fringe with Jen Brister and Zoe Lyons which is lovely that's almost sold out which is really exciting because I wasn't sure if people would want to come out even if they were allowed to so that felt like an early green shoot of we might have some things to go back to yeah (laughs) when the time comes I'm doing Camden Fringe as well in the Water Rats which is a massive venue so I'm quite scared about that one but that's in August and they've just announced that the fringe is going ahead in some capacity. So I don't know who to book or who's going to be part of it. And it's one of those questions that you don't want to ask because you see people already like, everyone's asking me that. I don't know. But people I know keep saying to me, when do you think shows will be back? You know, just from a, are you missing them? When do you think they'll be back? And I'm like, God, I don't know. I have genuinely no idea. We could start making some plans. But... I did an empty audience show yesterday at the Cavendish Arms in Stockwell. So the comedians were performing live on stage to a Zoom audience. Oh, interesting. It felt like a good halfway point. It was really fun. We had them on the screen so you could see them like reacting and yeah. laughing. But because we were all in the room as well waiting to go on, we kind of created a makeshift audience. I've done some comedy gigs to a room with no one in it when there was supposed Same. to be people in it, Vic. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not the greatest experience on earth. I, I did 100 open mics in a year, didn't I, in my first year, so I saw some empty rooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of that. So I want to ask, you seem to be one of those people that I know that has used lockdown as an opportunity And I mean that in a really positive way. And I know not everybody's had 
the luxury of making it an no. opportunity because you know of money concerns or health concerns or you like I don't have three children pulling on your legs while you're trying to work from home was that an intentional thing did you think I'm going to grasp hold of this or was this an opportunity a week if you know what I mean you thought oh I could do this oh and then I could do that and then I could do that or was was it all some part of great Machiavellian plan for world domination mix the whole comedy thing for me every single thing that's crossed my path I felt I ought to do and because it started by accident I just wanted to get over the phobia of public speaking and ended up doing a comedy course for it and then loved it it started as an accident I was surprised by how much I loved it I didn't think I had that level of enthusiasm for anything anymore you know you reach a certain point it's like I was 35 when I started doing it I was pretty set in my career I looked at life and I thought oh this is you know what this is fine I've done fine I've got a decent job I've got a decent lifestyle if this is all there is this is pretty good and then this completely new thing popped up that I just fell in love with it was like having a crush but it was on a whole industry (laughs) and I didn't know how long it was gonna last initially the excitement and the thrill of doing it because I never thought I'd be able to speak in front of people in a meaningful way and enjoy it just the adrenaline of that made it fun and I was worried that it would run out of steam yeah so I sort of threw everything at it I started putting together a show I applied to do the fringe I was running before I could walk but I was just worried it was all going to finish and then lockdown happens and I just took the same approach it's like okay what's out there and I think I saw, like you said, it's a huge privilege because I had, I've got a job. It's a huge privilege to have not had to worry about that. But I saw the opportunity in hustling myself onto bills that I wouldn't have been able to get to under normal circumstances, putting myself next to names that I wouldn't have been next to under normal yeah. circumstances. Because when the gigs started going, they wanted people who had a bit of Zoom experience. It's a different thing. It's a different skill set. I can't imagine. But I gave a lecture to a bunch of journalists in January and what I found really hard was doing it sitting down. It just seemed utterly alien to be attempting to project in some sort of authoritative, intelligent voice and have a cat on my lap. And Because I'm a big hands talker as well. It feels really odd doing it sitting down, but equally standing up just felt ludicrous. Just felt ludicrous There's, standing up doing it as well. Some people are doing it though. Yeah. Some people have set up like a little studio for themselves. Like Andrew O'Neill's got a full like mic set up and lights. So it looks like they're in, they're on a stage effectively. And just... I heard Jeff Norcott saying something on something or read him saying he had built like a little theatre that he was actually thinking yeah. about sticking with that moving on. Because and it's, what it's it has done is opened people. up it's opened up yeah. the possibility for anyone to come and watch it. And like you say, distance, you've been able to say to people who would have said to you, Oh, I can't come down and record that because of Yeah. What you can pay me isn't really worth studio. my time or yeah. whatever. And and when they have to walk into the lounge it rather than get on a train and travel two hundred miles, everything seems way more feasible, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, but the people that I've really enjoyed who seem to have really nailed it, some people like Sarah Keyworth and Jen Brister, it feels like a conversation. They've leaned into it, so it's less yeah. everybody pay attention to me and I'm going to speak to you. It just feels, you feel like you're in a really good chat and I think it's so cool. It's so cool to see it done. It's artful and I've seen I've seen them do sort of varying versions of the same set to different audiences. But retaining that intimacy, that that feeling that it's spontaneous is like, it's a real joy. It's been a real joy to see the comedians doing that well. Yeah. I would have Jen Brister on 
just in the corner of my life, if I could, just yeah. in my vision, <laughs> just her, her up there, like she would be on a, a, a on a FaceTime call, just there chatting to me constantly <laughs> in my life. Yeah. I did, because they came on Comedy Arcade, her, Maureen and Alison, because they did a Women Talking Bollocks like, Takeover special, yeah. and it was so much fun. It was absolute chaos. It was one of the best, it's one of the most listened to episodes. People just loved it. Going back to what you said about why you got into comedy, about doing it for confidence, that is why I started doing stand-up, which was when I was about 27, 28. Everybody thought I was a really confident person, but I was actually just a really, really adept bullshitter at that Same. point in my life. <laughs> yeah. And at one point I thought, wouldn't it be great if I was the person that every, if I was as confident as everybody thought that I was? And so, yeah, I got drunk and decided it would be really great to do a gig and book something, convince someone to let me. And a friend came with me and it wasn't as awful as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> In fact, it was quite a lot of fun. And I, I stuck with it for, well, for about five years until I reached the point where the other things that I were doing with my life, I was happy with that I didn't need what I got from gigging. I got it from other places. I don't think I ever had the desire to be a full-time professional stand-up comedian. I just wanted to hone some of those skills. And those skills have been valuable, she says now, sitting here in her pyjamas talk. But they have been valuable in my life. And I don't think if I'd done stand-up, I wouldn't be where I am now. What I learned from doing stand-up has been really valuable to me. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you, but it's the motivation (laughs) to do it was a very similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I had the option, if I would, because the travel, the, for the time that you spend on the stage, it's such graft. Like the people that are doing it well and doing it professional level, Mm. it looks like something that is a bit much for me, I think. No one's in it for the pay either. (laughs) It's not like you get to a certain level and you, yeah, it's, it's not an income in the way that I've come to understand an income in like 20 years of my full-time work. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I'm not sure I could make that break. It it feels terrifying because I tried freelancing as a PR and I just found it too stressful. Not knowing where your next month's money was coming from was, yeah, I was grinding my teeth to a fine dust. So I'm not sure I'd ever make the switch, even if I could. But then you look at things like the podcasting stuff and the gigs that I'm putting on and all of a sudden that package of things feels a little bit more like it could be a job in the future certainly not now the world needs to get back on its axis but yeah the industry itself I'd love that to be my full-time job but I don't know with what part of it all 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 parts of it (laughs) although I find like for me it was my full-time hobby (laughs) in that sense uh, I had a full-time job. I also had a full-time hobby. Yeah. But yeah, People I mean... People say that, don't they? They're like, I don't know where you find the time. I don't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you can only see this one square box, right? Yeah. In my Zoom call and not the rest of my house. Go back to live gigs, Fix. When do you think I might be able to have my bum on a chair in the same room as you and watch one of your brilliant all-female lineups that you used to put on again? <laughs> I'm hoping when the rules change the end of May. So my local pub is my favourite venue to work in. It's a female landlady as well. So it's an absolute dream team of women doing jobs that have typically been seen as masculine. So we love that. We love doing that together. So we're looking at the end of May. But I guess a lot of comedy in pubs will depend on whether they can make more money 
just rotating people in by the hour to have yeah. a drink, have a meal and go out. So it's finding where those quiet nights are because comedy used to work in those spaces because mm. pubs had quiet nights they needed to get people in. I don't know if we're going to be in the same position for that. So I feel like I'm a bit worried that we're going to lose a whole strata of opportunities and possibly a whole strata of a year of comedians that would have started and moved up. That's a really interesting point because to reaffirm, I've got some friends coming to see me just so we can go for a walk outside. And I tried to book a pub in Cambridge so we could sit in the garden and have a drink or have lunch because I can't make them, well, I can make them lunch, but they'd have to sit in my front garden and have it. <laughs> and it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. You can basically, you can be drunk by midday in Cambridge. You can get into the pubs at between 10 and 11 o'clock. And after that, for weeks, weeks ahead, it is fully booked up. Now, obviously, demand's going to drop, I would imagine, when it's less of a novelty. Mm. But at the same point, when you live in a tourist city... And that's where people pre-plan. We have the possibility for, the, for quite a while, unless we actually get to the point that pubs are open on full capacity, it's going to be unbelievably hard to do anything spontaneously in Cambridge. Yeah, particularly through the summer when it's a nice day. Mm. It's nice to be out and about. So maybe winter. I've got a booking with Backyard Comedy on the 27th of May. That's exciting. That My first exciting. time in there as an actual act and I've been going there to watch comedy for years so that's yeah hopefully by then <laughs> it'll just be me I've kind of loaded the odds to make me look like I'm funny by just getting loads of friends to come feel free <laughs> come up yeah I, I, to be honest I do need to come into London and I, the other day when I was bored I thought oh one weekend when I've got nothing to do which hopefully will be never again but I'm just going to go into King's Cross on the train and turn around and come back again just because I think it will break some kind of psychological barrier in me which is I don't want to get on public transport I really don't want to get on public transport I mean even getting to King's Cross I still don't think I'd get on the tube at the minute it was weird being out yesterday in general just out like planning that I was going to be out all day remembering that I maybe needed to take a charger because I did a photo shoot in the afternoon and then went straight on to the empty audience show. I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, oh, I won't be having lunch at home. I won't be having dinner at home. I've forgotten all of the ways yeah. <laughs> we used to live our life. Yeah. It just felt stressful, even like taking keys. I was like, I have to take keys. It feels like going on holiday because I can go and see my mum because I live on my own, so I'm allowed to be in her bubble. And every time I go and visit her, I pack a bag. If I go and see her for four hours, I'm like, right, what do you need to leave the house? You need purse and, like you say, keys and yes. phone and charger and all of that. And I end up taking a bag's worth of shit with me. And then I wonder why the cats are freaking out because they think I'm never coming <laughs> back again. But it's, cause, <laughs> it's because, yeah, I used to just, just walk out of the house, basically. Yeah. And and then maybe it'd be 12 hours before I was back because, like you say, someone after work would say, do you fancy a pint? And you'd do that. Everything seems like a really big deal at the moment. I was but... so, yeah, it was, I was so anxious yesterday about doing anything. But having done it, it was an absolute joy. It was a joy to be around people. It was a joy to be on a stage again, just to feel normal. It's like, we've all got legs. <laughs> They've atrophied. They've all atrophied because we haven't been able to <laughs> exercise. So we've all got legs. <laughs> so tell me where people can find out more about you Vix I'm at PR Vix on Twitter that's where I do my best work and it's just a collaboration of the things that have gone well on other social media channels that I've done yeah. basically it's 
comedy underscore arcade on Twitter as well. So there's loads of little bits and pieces, videos from old episodes, teaser type stuff. That's that's a good place to start if you're not sure if it's for you. I know people have only got a finite capacity for things to listen to. You find out, like everyone was really supportive, like, yeah, I get a podcast. And I'm like, none of you fuckers are listening to it. <laughs> well, I will say that if this makes you feel better, I have listened to some and I pretty much have a podcast on a news one mostly or a comedy one unless I've got earphones in listening to editing our own podcast I have always got something on in the background because I'm like that dog that people leave the tv on for when they're out just going to work a little ticking clock in a blanket yeah I just yeah, that and then and then I carry one of Mick's shoes around in my in my mouth for a bit but yeah I mostly just I mostly just listen to them in the background yeah, it is company, and I think they've been incredible company for people in the last yeah in the last year. Yeah, I so love I good... love the ones that are overnight because I'm still so new to this. I'm sort of obsessed with the listeners, and then you see the like little spikes at like one a.m. two a.m. I was like, oh, you're not sleeping either, and you're listening to me, and I love that. New mums. So many podcasts when I'm being able to sleep, and they've been kind of my friends yeah. when it's like when it feels like the world is not there. So it's yeah. nice to now be one of those people for someone else. Like I really enjoyed it. It just really sort of you, thrilled me the idea that that was happening somewhere in some houses. Yeah, you, you're doing the Lord's work, Vix. <laughs> thank you ever so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'm joined by Halima Begum, Chief Executive of the Running Me Trust, the UK's leading independent race equality think tank. Hello, Halima. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And just really pleased to be speaking to you and, and everybody who's listening out there today. Thank you for having us. Oh, no, thank you. So you've come to chat to me today about COVID vaccine take-up rates amongst black and ethnic minority communities and the possibility of a COVID vaccine passport and what that might mean going forward. I wondered if you could tell me, first of all, just a little bit more about Running Me Trust and, and what you guys do. The Running Me Trust was set up in 1968 and uh, in the UK when I, I guess race relations was quite tense in the UK and across the, the pond in the US. That's the year when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So there was a a lot of concern, a lot of crises around race relations. And we were set up to put a sensible, measured voice around, you know, where we were on race and how it is that we can progress racial equality in the UK. And since 1968, we've published uh, independent research evidence data to promote racial justice in this country. And it might range from insight and data on education, the criminal justice system, the visual arts, or wherever we feel that there is a need to better understand the situation of black and ethnic minority communities in the UK. There is a specific situation unfolding at the moment amongst black and ethnic minority communities in the UK with regards to the COVID vaccine. So I personally, I'm, I'm 38 years old and I'm waiting for my call up. I cannot wait to get jabbed but it's not a sentiment that is necessarily shared by everyone. And in fact, the statistics around vaccine take-up rates are quite shockingly varied between ethnic groups, with take-up being the highest amongst white people and the lowest amongst people in the black community, particularly with other ethnic minority groups sort of falling somewhere in between those. So I'll just tell you 
one of the stats, which is in the 50 to 54 age range. Now, obviously, you'd expect it to kind of tail off a bit as the age groups go down, because some people will feel that they're not necessarily as at as much risk from COVID. But Obviously, we do also know that black and Asian men particularly are at higher risk of, of you know, serious complications or, or death from COVID. So in that age group, the take up amongst white people is 87.4% and in black people is 59.1%. So there's there's huge disparity there and, and that disparity is represented across the board in terms of age groups. So, sorry, that was a very long-winded way of getting to the point, which is, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about why that disparity is is unfolding at the moment. So we have seen with COVID um, the kind of inequalities that exist in British society. So they've been laid bare, as we have seen. And you'd expect also in the vaccine uptake for those disparities and inequalities to show. So what we're now seeing is a situation where groups that are, disproportionately affected, as you say, by COVID, so black and ethnic minority communities, and in particular men from those communities, disproportionately affected, but also not um, coming forward to take the vaccine. And that reflects, I think, wider inequalities in society, but also a lack of confidence in those communities about health uptake and health systems in this country. So we're always going to be a little bit behind the curve with the majority uh, groups in society that tend to be white. This is about vaccine equity, isn't it? So some groups will have more questions. We need to answer those questions. Some groups will feel as though they historically haven't been treated well in the health system. So they would want to have their confidence built and think there's a responsibility on health providers to build that confidence. There's a responsibility on leaders within those communities to build more confidence. There's generally probably a responsibility on the public systems to to create greater confidence as well as responsibility on the individual who may or may not want the vaccine. So as you say, Jen, you can't wait. I can't wait. I couldn't wait to get the vaccine, mainly because I wanted to protect others in my community who were disproportionately affected. But if you go to younger members of our communities, they legitimately have questions around fake news, misinformation, misinformation that's coming to the UK from different parts of the world. And, and you know, they're not used to suddenly making decisions quickly and in a rash way about their health and situation and how much they trust either the criminal justice system or the health system. And, and I think we just need to be patient and answer their questions. So that broadly explains the take up. One of the things that we've heard a lot in the news is that one of the reasons for low take up is about this idea of historical medical testing on certain ethnic minority groups. And I wondered if, you know, you've, you've sort of mentioned there that there's perhaps a lack of trust in, in healthcare systems, but I wondered if there's something more fundamental as well in that there's a lack of trust in public bodies and, and institutions more, more generally. So the government's own reports, parliamentary reports on the human rights of black people and their experience of racism showed last year that 85% of black communities didn't have trust in the institutions and the three institutions that they talked about was the criminal justice system, the Home Office and the NHS. Naturally because these are the institutions that have most contact in relation to the freedom and rights of our communities as citizens. So it's showing a real lack of trust that's quite fundamental I think in understanding why we've also had um, lower uptake in vaccines 
In addition, though, I would say that it's asking our communities or just British people in general quite a lot to suddenly discard um, all their questions they have around vaccines, about a new vaccine, a new disease that suddenly hit us all, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, and to just overcome historic fears within uh, within days, really. And the people that are most likely to overcome those fears are the ones that would feel a secure sense of belonging to institutions in the British state. They would be the ones that have never been questioned about their identity or they've never been stopped and searched on the streets because of their skin colour. It's much harder for groups that have always felt that they have been treated less fairly mm. to suddenly mm. overcome that trust deficit. And I think that's really important to understand. It's not that inherently black and ethnic minority communities just distrust the state. It has come about as a pattern and a trend in their lives. And therefore, asking them to overcome that distrust overnight is quite a mountain to climb. But nevertheless, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do to save lives. And that is why I think we've seen uh, community leaders and members and the government reach out with public campaigns to build trust and confidence. I think there's also something else going on at the moment, which is the fact that we live in a hyper social media related environment where individuals are asked to mediate information from a variety of sources that could be trustworthy, not credible, etc. So public health systems are having to balance out um, information that is contradicting the, the reassuring messages that you, you want to give to our communities. Mm. I wondered what that would mean for talk that sort of keeps coming up and going away again about a possible COVID vaccination passport, which would essentially allow you, you know, passage within society if you have had your COVID vaccines. And then, for example, you might be, I don't know, turned away from the pub or which in itself is a very like is something that we've all been talking about. And I realise is in itself shows a lack of understanding of other groups who maybe, for example, don't really go to the pub. So people who may not be allowed to go to restaurants or other public spaces without having had their COVID vaccinations. So that is obviously, if the take up rates remain the same, going to impact disproportionately on those groups. Generally, I think that's going to be an outcome that we want to avoid because you'll end up with some groups that can go into clubs or youth clubs or pubs and other groups that cannot. And then you have to ask the question, well, who is it that's going to not get access and who will gain access? In addition to that, you know, groups that aren't showing the vaccine um, passport will inevitably be black and minority ethnic communities, as you said. And likely it's going to create tension at doorsteps or, you know, if you want to go inside a pub or a youth club or a restaurant, it's likely to create tension. And I don't think that businesses or their customers want to create tension and manage that tension. So I don't think the businesses want this. I don't think the customers want this. And I don't think black and minority ethnic communities want this. But fundamentally, I, I believe that it's not in the British tradition to actually have our freedom curtailed in this way. So we're going to have to find another way to create uh, safe spaces in clubs and bars that doesn't involve a technical fix around a passport document. It's just not in our tradition, is it? It would basically be segregation. So segregation is obviously a term that's quite emotive, so I tend not to use it. But essentially, you will see the same groups of people in the pubs and the bars. And the same groups of people, by the way, who are uh, going to have the vaccine earlier, for example, because they, they're able to get vaccinated, produce a vaccine document, aren't terribly worried about 
ID registration in any sense of the word. As you say, they haven't grown up with a stop and search in their lives for years and years and years. So they just don't have any reason to distrust a document, whereas other groups will, will face that lack of trust. We haven't given them enough time to overcome that mistrust because trust is something that takes years to develop. But you can break it overnight if you experience a negative encounter with the police. So I do think it's going to have a disproportionate impact and, and more white people will end up being in those clubs and spaces than not. And I just don't think that reflects British society. But fundamentally, I think you want to create building trust and confidence in our communities, and that wouldn't be the way to go. So, I mean, I just sort of touched upon this before in my faux pas in in using the pub as an example, but I've seen lots of people on social media, for example, or journalists, um, talking about how ethnic minority groups, despite being the most impacted on by what's going on with COVID, so not only are they more vulnerable in terms of the health outcomes, But also, you know, there will be people from those groups in, for example, lower paid jobs or situations whereby perhaps they haven't reaped all of the, you know, benefits of furlough payments and things like that. So there's multiple kind of impacts on these groups of people. And yet they haven't ever sort of really been centred in the discussions around COVID. Is that something that you see going on? We have, from the very beginning, published research to understand why black and ethnic minority communities have been disproportionately impacted. So if you remember, Public Health England published its first report on COVID impact back in March 2020. We were very quick to then publish um, our own research to understand that disproportionality because we were suitably concerned as a nation as to why this was happening. And the reason why this was a disproportionate impact for our communities was twofold. One to do with overexposure in our environment. So the housing conditions, the living conditions, the fact that we work in precarious jobs and we have to take the bus to get to work and so on. Another reason was to do with the uh, under protection of our communities. So not being able to be at work and say that I want PPE or I want better protection. So combined, that produces a result that is disproportionate for black and minority communities. And right from the beginning, we have argued, say, for example, when we looked at the criteria for rolling out vaccinations according to age, age is but one risk factor. We've always said that ethnicity and race, as well as deprivation, could account for the risk factor. And we've always argued for these risk factors to be prioritised. So that would mean that our communities would have been better protected. That protection was never centred. It was never centred for black and ethnic minority communities. In some shape or form, the government acknowledged, I think, uh, three months ago uh, through the back door that they would consider ethnicity and deprivation as risk factors. But it came too late. It came too late. If we wanted to centre ethnic minority communities in a COVID response, we wouldn't have had what I call a colourblind response, like everybody's been affected in the same way. We know that's not true. Um, and even by the current standards around age, for example, a lot of minority communities tend to be younger much younger than the average white demographic. So it means that our younger populations are still underprotected and haven't been vaccinated, as you haven't been, Jen, as you said. But we have greater numbers of younger black and minority ethnic community members that are just not vaccinated yet. So right from the start, if government were to actually target support to black and ethnic minority communities in order to prevent us from being affected by COVID, you would have ended up building more trust because the government has your back. And I don't think our communities have seen that in a timely way. 
still it is our role as you know leaders in civil society to continue to press the message that the confidence isn't broken it's still there we can work with it and let's continue working with it with all of these things in mind a recent report which was published by the government which found that there was and i quote no evidence of institutional racism in the uk you know that that has drawn a lot of scorn and anger and upset within black and minority ethnic communities. To me, as a white person looking in, it it seems to me improbable that that would be the case. Because I guess the point with institutional racism is that it's insidious, right? So it may be something that you don't necessarily see that much evidence of, because you'd like to think that if there was blatant evidence of it, that something might change or, you know, some people might lose their jobs over it, for example. So I wondered if that headline message had been misrepresented or if it is as bad as as people are saying it is. It's interesting, Jen. Um, so we've, we've obviously been at the forefront of a response, a nationally organised response to the government's race report. And I've had a chance to reflect on um, also the, 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 the ensuing discussion and debate about the civil report. So the Runnymede Trust collaborated very positively with the government's commission on race disparities. We did so by organising 30 other organisations to combined way give submission and evidence on various aspects of race and racism in this country, including direct racism and also institutional racism. Because you, you have to remember that casual racism, direct racism and institutional racism to different outcomes. And, and you could argue that we have made progress on casual racism, but we have a long way to go to tackle institutional racism. And I think that was the gist of the submissions that many organisations provided. Subsequently, I think the handling of the communications of that commission was flawed because the way in which the headlines were communicated provoked a certain response which might not have been the intention of the the commissioners themselves. So I think with hindsight, it's important that we look at the communications piece around that commission, which I think is responsible for a lot of the negativity and the negative handling of, of that commission. So I think those people who are responsible for the communications of, of that report need, need to be learning a few lessons. But to the more fundamental point around, was the evidence missed or misrepresented or was it credible? I would say that the, the balance has been in favour of direct racism and how much progress we've made there as opposed to digging further into the evidence on institutional racism, which was provided. We, we do have a long way to go to tackle institutional racism. And, and if you if you look at the, the conversations and debate around the murder of George Floyd in America after the verdict, President Joe Biden said, this is the start, not the end of a conversation around how we as a nation and a country deal and tackle with institutional racism. It's the same in the UK. You have to start that conversation in order to resolve it. I think it's very important that we understand that when we discuss institutional racism, it doesn't mean that we aren't making progress elsewhere. We are. However, there's a long way to go. I think having greater diversity at the board level of companies and organisations is a positive measure, and it will help raise awareness on what institutional racism is. But equally, you could have a board or a leadership group that is diverse but isn't committed to reversing institutional racism. 
So fundamentally, I think a leadership group, whatever its composition, needs to commit to reversing those outcomes. And I think one one way that we can progress this conversation is to help the public and policymakers understand what institutional racism is. And it's really important, I think, for our organisations to do so as well. So it's not just for government to help explain what institutional racism is and defend their record. It's on civil society organisations to help broaden our understanding of it. Nobody goes to work to be institutionally racist. It's not a it's not a judgment on the individual leader. It's actually a judgment on the system to get the system to be fairer and work better. But institutional racism isn't isn't the same as direct racism. It can occur without intent. But fundamentally, the consensus that we got to after the murder of Stephen Lawrence in this country many, many years ago, that indirect racism happens unwittingly. In other words, you don't intend it to happen, but it does happen for institutional policies. And I think that's where we need to shape our public understanding about what institutional racism means so we can commit to dismantling it. It isn't just about what you and I do because we're committed to being anti-racist. It's about understanding how the system can create and shape policies. And we need to understand how we get to better outcomes. If we could take the sting and the emotion out of institutional racism to really try and understand what's happening, I believe that we can actually have joined up work across governments, across civil society, across the police, and all those institutions have actually committed to changing outcomes for the better for black and ethnic minority communities. I think we could move a long way to become a post-racial society. Halima, where can our listeners check out Running Maids Trust if we want to keep up to date with the work that you guys are doing? You can check us out on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, uh, Running Maids Trust. Or if you're individually interested in following me, it's Halima underscore Begum on Twitter. We would love you to follow us because we, we believe that uh, young people have a chance to shape a better future than we've had before. And, and you're shaping the future. Come and help us do it. Thank you so much for joining me, Halima. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a brutal uppercut to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Boxing two weeks in a row? Yay! Well, no, not really. Not this week anyway. An interesting story came up in the last week, in fact, reported on by the Telegraph's women's sport team regarding Canadian boxer Mandy Bujold. She is an 11-time national flyweight champion. She represented Canada in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. And in fact, she planned a pregnancy around the Olympic cycle because, you know, that's what you have to do when you're a female athlete. And she took time out in 2018 to do that, to, you know, get pregnant and, and have a baby. So basically, as you know, the Olympics were postponed last year and are now due to take place at the end of July, beginning of August this year. That's obviously because of the coronavirus pandemic. I spoke to Jay Pavey for the podcast last year. And of course, this postponement will have a huge impact on any number of male and female athletes. And in Joe's case, when we spoke, it was around trying to still make it to another Olympics at the age of 47. There will be others in similar situations, no doubt. The problem faced by Bujold is, however, that qualifying events for the Olympics also ended up getting cancelled due to the pandemic and the qualifying events now being retrospectively applied all took place while she was on maternity leave. 
It's obviously an extraordinary kick in the tits. And Bujold has now filed a legal challenge against the decision with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, claiming that the process discriminates against pregnant and postpartum athletes. It's obviously a very tricky situation. Like I say, the postponement of the Games will have had a huge impact on many, many athletes and possibly not even just for the one cycle because by the end of the Games this year we'll be a year into the cycle for the next game. So it's, you know, potentially a long-lasting thing. And I think about this a lot with regards to football as well, the number of games crammed into the last year, the lack of gaps between upcoming international tournaments. And I've also said on the podcast before, and, you know, I'm I'm sure they are, but I, I do hope that people are thinking about the impact of this on individual athletes from a physical perspective in terms of injuries and and things like that. But yes, the IOC and the powers that be have to come up with a cut-off point somewhere and these things are always arbitrary. I can absolutely see, however, the unfairness of retrospectively applying that time period when Bujold has actively taken steps to work her pregnancy around her sport. It's also not the first time female athletes have found themselves in these tricky situations. Look at, for example, the scandal around sponsorship of female athletes being cancelled during maternity leave, which came up a couple of years ago. So Bujold has highlighted changes made by the Women's Tennis Association in 2018 that allowed returning mothers to qualify for tournaments on the basis of their previous ranking, as in prior to their maternity leave. But why did it happen then? Well, because Serena Williams, prior to her pregnancy, was the world number one and major star of the women's tour. Well, both tours, really. She was returning from maternity leave at that point, and and I'm presuming quite a big draw in terms of spectators and corresponding amounts of cold hard cash. Clearly you want her in your tournaments from a sort of marketing perspective but I'm sure the WTA also wanted to do the right thing. I think that's a fair comparison to make and also as Bujold says in Canada as is the case in the UK in the corporate world you return to the same position after you come back from maternity leave to the one that you were in before so why should that be any different in sport? Good point. Okay, so on to some better news and, uh, yeah, it relates to Emma Hayes again. Congratulations to Chelsea, who have retained the WSL title for another year after beating Reading 5-0 at the weekend. They pipped Manchester City to the title by two points and, unfortunately, Bristol City faced relegation to the Championship. In the Women's Championship, Leicester City finished top, eight points clear of second-place Durham. Meanwhile, London Bees are relegated. You didn't ask, but I'll tell you anyway, Charlton Athletic finished eighth, so well done, Charlton. Looking forward to seeing Charlton women doing better next year under the uh, stewardship of new owner Thomas Sangard and new manager Karen Hills. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. How many policemen does it take to wait for a phone call? With the answer to that and the question, what did you make us watch this week? Mickey Nonan, take it away. We can discuss the answer to the first question anon, but this week we watched Thelma and Louise, 1991's Oscar-winning Hey Women, This One's For You movie, directed by Ridley Scott. No stranger to a strong female lead, and written by Callie Curry, who bagged the film's sole Oscar for her screenplay. Presumably, she originally called it Liability in Louise, but was forced to change it, because surely, surely, but we'll get to that. Starring Gina Davis as Thelma, trapped housewife of a puffed-up imbecile, and Susan Sarandon as School of Hard Knocks waitress Louise, it's also got an impressive supporting cast of, well, men, 
including Harvey Keitel, Brad Pitt and Michael Madsen before he turned into what looks like a cushion of his own face. (laughs) Despite some controversy at the time of its release, which accused the movie of portraying a negative view of men, seriously, boo-hoo, look outside the window at what men, hashtag not all men, are doing people. Anyway, the film became a critical and commercial success, receiving six Oscar nods and cashing in at the box office. It also, like so many of our rated or dated picks, although I'm not looking at you, Buddy Song, has a spot in the National Film Registry, which in 2016 deemed it culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Okay, I've not used the F word yet, have I? So, yeah, Thelma and Louise is viewed by many, including itself, to be a feminist classic. I have many thoughts, and at the same time, one very loud thought on this which you may or may not have figured out by now, but I figured this was one to save for the chat. I shall keep my powder dry till then. So the plot is basically a series of bad to worse decisions leading to a terrible decision. That's if I'm viewing it ungenerously, so I will give it a little bit more meat. Long-time buddies Thelma and Louise are off on a road trip, but Thelma's too scared to tell her husband Daryl, a man whose jerk status is highlighted by him yelling at three people in the space of about three minutes, and whose pig thickery is underlined by him standing in his own pizza. So if she doesn't tell him, she just leaves him a note and scarpers. Jumping into Louise's highly conspicuous, and can I say absolutely knockout Thunderbird, they stop at a roadside bar to begin letting their hair down. A few cocktails in, and Thelma's dancing with some arsehole cowboy, who proceeds to try to rape her in the car park. Luckily, Louise comes outside, points a gun at him, and he stops. But then he slides her off, so she shoots him. Convinced no one would believe their story, they go on the run, and indeed a manhunt, well, a woman hunt, begins, led by kindly detective Hal Slocum, played avuncularly, that's very hard to say, by Harvey Keitel, who insists on referring to 35-year-old Davis and 45-year-old Sarandon as girls the entire film. Anyway, Louise knows they're going to need cash if they're to make it to Mexico, so she calls her errant boyfriend Jimmy, that's Madsen, to wire her savings to her. In the meantime, Thelma's got chatting to tasty hitchhiker JD, Brad Pitt, in one of his very first roles, whose character very much embodies the saying, if something looks too good to be true, don't fuck it and leave all your cash on the bedside table while you swan (laughs) off for breakfast in post-coital idiocy. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. So yeah, they are double fucked. So Thelma, very politely, robs a convenience store. They really get into the outlaw life, blow up a truck for shits and giggles, discover their true womeny selves hooray which in the end leads to nothing really boo as they're finally trapped by the rosas so they drive off the edge of the grand canyon into oblivion slash a really fucking horrible death cue fade to white worst photo montage ever and roll credits a little fun fact for you two before we get to the nitty-gritty they knocked two inches off six footer gina davis's height in the police call out where thelma is described as being five foot ten Because women can be gun-toting outlaws, sure, but we can't have them being tall. Hannah, Jen, have you seen Thelma and Louise before? And if so, when was the last time you saw it? I'm going to start with Jen. I had never seen it before. That's, I'm a little bit astonished by that. It's, when, 1991? Yeah, just, I think I would have been a bit young for it then. And it just, it's just never come up. Fair enough. Never come up. Fair enough. Hannah one. Yeah, I can remember seeing it on the telly at one of my auntie's house. Maybe actually somebody got it on video rather than it was on the telly. 
So maybe it was two years or whatever after this. I would have been 17, 18, something like that. I might have seen it since, but if I have, I can't think of when it was. I'd forgotten how long it is. It feels like quite a long film, right? It's 128 minutes. Mm. I had forgotten how ugly it is at the start because it's a a road movie and because American road movies look a certain way and because it quite famously was based on Badlands, which is something that I made us watch in Flicking, if anybody wants to go back. Because they use the scenery to go from the point of view of that the women are quite oppressed at the start by, you know, just the world, which is represented by, like, those pylons and all of that stuff, to the idea that when they finally cut loose, it's about freedom, so it's about wide open space. It does Mm -hmm. mean that the first half of it is, like, one of the ugliest looking road movies I think I've ever seen, and I had forgotten that. Let's dive in with the big question. Do you think it is a feminist movie? With hindsight, no. At the time, did it have an impact on women around me, older women who considered it to be quite, hey, the girls? Then, yes, I would say it did speak to women, so it deserves some credit for that. But It literally put women in the driving seat. Yeah, but do I think it is feminist when... It's about a series of decisions that I, I just desperately struggle to understand. And not just because I couldn't put myself in their situation, but because I genuinely don't know that a woman who just had a terrible experience with a strange man a few days later invites another strange man into her bedroom. So in many ways, I think a lot of the decisions just drive the plot. Then it's about serving the purpose of not telling the best stories of those women. So... I'm going to say no, it's not. That was a long-winded way of saying that, but no. (laughs) Jen, what do you think? Did it make you feel awake, wide awake? Um... Do you remember never feeling this awake before? (laughs) No. I can imagine at the time, like, there wasn't a lot out there that did speak to women. Like, there weren't that many films that weren't just, like, shitty rom-coms or whatever. Not to be disparaging about rom-coms, because, you know, some people like them and... and Doesn't mean they're good. (laughs) (laughs) well yeah you know i just you know i don't want to be like you know chick lit or whatever about it yeah Um, but yeah i guess it was like a bit of a sort of shirley valentine kind of a effect i don't know like maybe women watched it and were like yeah my husband's a bellend so yeah like I, i can totally see how at the time it would have been considered feminist but the thing that i i don't know if this is the point you were gonna make mickey but I guess, like, for it to be a feminist film, well, there is, like, it's directed by a man, so can it be? I don't know. Like, I think shouldn't... Alien could be considered quite a feminist film, and that's Ridley Scott. I don't actually necessarily agree with that, because I think... We'll have to find I out think... when that was and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got lots of thoughts on but Alien. But I think the issue is, what these women do when they break free is essentially become men or certainly Mm. become masculine. And that's what makes it, to me, not feminist because, okay, they rob the places and they're very polite. They're very polite when they put the Rosa into the back of the car. I mean, he would die in the heat in the back of that. That's kind of glossed over. But Brad Pitt was very polite. So, you know, that's not necessarily something that would be seen as a, 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 a thing of their feminism. But they just become violent and angry. And essentially what it is is a revenge film about women taking their revenge on men rather than women grasping hold of their situation. Yeah, that has nailed it to an extent 
for what I was thinking as well. Because I do think at the time, and even watching it now, there is something really refreshing in seeing women in those roles. Because all of the outlaws before are men or a woman attached to a man, if you think of Bonnie and Clyde. So yeah, why, why shouldn't women who are doing that have the same sort of road trip, outlaw trip? But all of the decisions they make, which is why this is why I don't think it can be a feminist film, all of the decisions they make are based on a man, on men. Do you know what was wrong with Gina Davis? All she needed was a good fuck. The film essentially says that, doesn't it? That what Gina Davis was was looking for Mm. a good tumble with a fit young man. That was the answer to many of her problems, not what came out of herself. The idea that they're in it together... And it's about a bonding of two women isn't half as clear in this as I remember it being or as the merchandising sells you, as it were. I would agree with that because she because Thelma is just a fucking idiot, Mm. isn't she? Like she's a liability. So many bad decisions, as you say, like. I became increasingly frustrated for Louise as I watched it. I was just like, I would just have fucking jettisoned her already. Like, this is just awful. But in fairness to Thelma, which I do not say lightly because she is, oh, she's just such an idiot. Louise makes a terrible decision. Mm. The fact that they yeah. say we would, our story wouldn't convince them. Well, actually, do I think that Harlan the rapey cowboy is a dribbling dick rash? Absolutely. But his murder at her hands isn't self-defense no so and i actually think there's quite a lot to like about their friendship just watching it but i wouldn't like yeah there'd be like no way i'd be having words with thelma a a long while back we wouldn't be going on a road trip together i don't think she'd be someone i would bump into at other people's parties the whole start of the thing like you know i not to victim blame her because he does try to rape her but like just to begin like you know Fucking poor Louise is like, mate, we've got to go. What, she you, didn't even on, want to like, stop for stop a drink. She just, yeah, and she just wants to dick around with this man who's so clearly an absolute shit weasel as well. Like, you can tell by the way exactly. he dances with his whole arm around the back of her neck that you're yeah, like, that's it, I will be gone. That Ooh. is who that guy is. And yeah. actually, what Jen said and what you've just said, but what Jen said is... The first thing that Thelma does on this road trip of their friendship and we're going out is just fuck off, just leaves Louise sat at a table. She goes, let's dance and then just walks off with him. Doesn't look back for her friend. So she's not only an idiot, she's a, she's quite a bad friend. Yeah. Which leads me to wonder, why did Louise trust her to look after their $6,700? Yeah, I couldn't... I mean, that was clearly just to drive the plot, as exactly. Hannah says. But it, there's no way you're giving her the money to look after. There's no way. Like, it, it, nothing about it makes sense. Fun fact, which you probably know, Calicuri wrote this for two friends of hers who were also friends of each other and flatmates, Frances McDormand and Holly Hunter. Which, oh. And when I learnt that, oh. I thought, I mean, obviously Frances McDormand would be Louise. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I think she'd be a perfect Louise. Also, Jen, when I was watching it, I just couldn't, couldn't get over how much Emily Mead's performance in The Deuce is like Thelma. It's like uncannily yes, she does like this Thelma. like she, weird like thing yeah. with her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Or loads of her ticks and whatever. So I thought, yeah, if we ever interview her, first question is, is your favourite film Thelma and Louise? Because you can just see it really clearly <laughs> in it. So moving on from the question of whether it's a feminist film, which I think we've agreed 
it falls down for us now watching it today 30 years on what do you think of it as a as a film i've got to admit that i still thought it was quite a fun watch despite all of the flaws that we've just described it felt quite long but i was recovering from my first vaccine injection so i was a little bit i felt quite headachey but i didn't hate it it was felt like quite no. an, it moves at quite a giddy pace and it's got some jokes in it which is good as well like it needs levity mm-hmm. that that lovely bit at the end where Louise says, how are you enjoying the holiday so far? And it's genuinely <laughs> funny. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think it's infinitely watchable. No, I agree. I, it did seem a bit long. I do, I, do, I do slightly wonder that a film that's two hours, if it feels long, it's, you know, that's not a ringing endorsement, is it? But, yeah, I enjoyed it well enough, I guess. Yeah. I've got one last question for you both, and that is... If you'd been followed by a misogynist trucker shouting sexual slurs at you and he looks really sweaty, he's been doing weird little things with his tongue, what an arsehole. Right, and you've decided to blow up his truck, just, you know, revenge. Would you then put the hat that he's been wearing on your head? Uh, Oh, no. Oh, that hat's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, you can't blow up tanks with bullets, but... No matter okay. how hard Hannah tries, okay. every yeah. weekend. I was going to say, how, do you have, like, you know... No, no, it's just science. Evidence of <laughs> this? science, Jen. I mean, okay. yeah. It's like you can't light petrol by dropping a cigarette in it. But, yeah, that appears Can in so many films. No, you need a flame. You need a spark. That is the most romantic advice Hannah Dunleavy has ever given anyone. Uh. You need a flame. You need a spark. So, is Thelma and Louise rated or dated? I think it's dated, but I didn't, but but it was all right to watch. Yeah, I concur. If the word dated means doesn't do the same thing that it did when it first came out, then exactly, exactly everything mm-hmm. I've just said suggests I think it's dated, even though rated also means is it quite a good film? Yeah, maybe that's our third category. Rated or dated, or dated but didn't hate it. <laughs> I tried to make this case the other week and you were all very disparaging. (laughs) Who is next on the pick? Oh, it's me. Do you remember when I was banging on a while ago about how great 1996 looked in hindsight as a year in cinema? Because like Trainspotting, Fargo. We're going back to 1996 again to the film that made Mike Lee popular in America and Brenda Blether really famous, which is Secrets and Lies. I used to love that film, so... I hope this isn't going to ruin it for <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women. <laughs> 